On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all-music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Colin Fleming, who wrote an entry for the 33 and a 3rd series on Sam Cooke's Live at the Harlem Square Club, 1963. Welcome, Colin. Hey, how's it going? Going good. So we've had a lot of authors on, from the 33 and a 3rd series, and I always lead with the same question first, which is, give us your pitch to 33 and a 3rd. What did you want to write about? Actually, I was supposed to be writing a book on Billie Holiday's Lady and Satin, and it was when they had these other editors in charge of everything. And the way we left it on a Friday was that I would be doing that Billie Holiday book. Monday comes around, and the same editor who signed off on it said to me, you know what? You're a white male. Don't tell anyone this, but I would be uncomfortable having you write about Billie Holiday in this climate. I thought, well, that's just kind of the antithesis of everything that Billie Holiday was about. But they got flushed out. I moved on to another project, and that ended up being Sam Cooke. And as I discussed in the book, it actually has a lot of overlap with Billie Holiday. So that was sort of the place that I was coming from. Wow, that's very interesting, uh, too, that that take. And, and also another one of my favorite records is that Billie Holiday record. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that Billie Holiday record because there's so many people, like, it's polarizing, right? Like, when you mentioned that it was one of your favorites, I was like, yes. It's almost <laughs> like some relief because, like, I had this uh, advisor in college, and he just would scrap to the death that she was all done by then, and she had embarrassed herself. And I think Sam Cooke, too, probably would have loved that record. Well, on the first page of your book, you write, oftentimes we simply see Sam Cooke, inventor of soul. But then you say that even if he did invent it, it doesn't matter because Sam Cooke was a master of transcending labels. Can you expand on that? Sure. I just think we get bogged down in these pithy, factoidy, quippy type of remarks that dislocate us from the actual autonomous reality of what something is. We get these handles and they're never challenged. They're never vetted. We never look at them. They're lazy. It's how we think lazily. And it does us no service as people who might or might not grow. And it doesn't do the artist any favors either. So if Sam Cook, this whole notion of the invented soul, it's just this catch-all ready-made bromide that doesn't mean anything. Say he did. Is that in and of itself substantial? Is that something that's going to impact and influence the world? Because it has this footnote status to it, like somebody had to create this, I don't know, the first break for the automobile or whatever, but just in and of itself, if that's just your thing, is that enough when we're talking within the world of art? And to me, it's not. So what happens is a lot of people get that catch-all bromide, 
and they stop there. It becomes the thing they parrot and they say on Twitter, and they never listen to an album like this. They never listen to a Night Beat or any of these other concept albums by Sam Cooke. And they just sort of repeat what everyone else repeats. And I think that's one of the problems with our current age. Yeah, I would agree with you. And, you know, that it limits your exploration for sure. And as we will talk about, because your book focuses quite a bit on it, is, you know, he changed a lot and changed what he did and morphed and did a lot of interesting things. But I know this record had a very personal meaning to you. Could you tell our listeners the story of you as a kid in a record store hearing this album for the first time and the courage and especially the energy it gave you? I would say that when it played a crucial survival component in my life that was going to be later but the way i first came across it was as something i asked for for christmas so i would have been a teenager and i was one of those kids who liked to sort of know what was coming for christmas because it was all books and cds and it gave me something to be jazzed about and look forward to listening to and i was going to use the same cd that i got when i was a teenager when i was going through writing this book like breaking it down breaking the music down and everything like that so i was well into sam cook from what i knew driving in the car like with my parents the oldie station and everything but that was you send me and songs of that nature sort of like the poppier things and not that he didn't again more from one sort of style to another with his singles but I knew that I wanted to go further. I was within a process of going further with like lots of people. I'm sure like many people, I was into like Led Zeppelin. You get into Led Zeppelin and then you're finding Sun House and Howlin' Wolf and all of these people. So that was just the way I progressed from artist to artist and with each artist. So like you have the Red and the Blue album by the Beatles. And then before you know it, you're like hardcore into with the Beatles and Beatles for sale. So I did a version of that with Sam Cooke. And then later on in my adult life, like decades later, when I had lost uh, like a, a spouse in a house and was barely functioning, it was something that I listened to when I was walking across Boston at ungodly hours of, I was going to say the morning, but it wasn't even really the morning. It wasn't the night. It wasn't the morning. It was just like that sort of intervallic hell space. And I'm going down Newberry Street or Boylston by myself. And this record is just playing in my ears and it's it's helping me keep going and it's it's giving me like an energy not just of its own but an energy that i had to source within myself i knew sam cook as well through my parents but it was definitely the popular side that you said me things and I, I bought this when it came out in 85 i was up here at bu and it was just like i'm staring at the record cover and looking at it and it's like a totally different sam cook i was like wow it's such a strange album too in the context of 1985, it's like Smith's Culture <laughs> Club. Like you could have some sort of like Motley Times at the record store. And oh, yes, not even just Sam Cooke, like a compilation, but hardcore, vintage, on the road, down home, Chitlin Circuit type of Sam Cooke. Yeah, definitely. And Sam Cooke got to start with the Soulsters, which was a tremendously popular, influential gospel group. And shortly after leaving that band, he cut You Send Me, which you mentioned, and, and that melds R&B, gospel, and pop, and sold over two million copies. You call it the most significant of all pop songs. And in your book, you write that the song is what starts Cook's journey to the Harlem Square Club. Can you explain that journey? It commences his progression, I would say, if you especially focus on, as I do, the demo version of You Send Me. 
because you send me itself to cut all the airplay, the official version would straddle two worlds because it has an element of the gospel work that he was doing with the soul stirrers, but with kind of the the bottom cleaved out. So you're getting a lot of that sort of seraphic top, that sort of like angelic quality rather than like the whole full throated shout of like the kingdom of heaven type of thing mm. that he had been doing. But if you listen to the demo of You Send Me, and it's Cook playing guitar, it's just him playing guitar. We don't get a lot of that. And a lot of people don't even think of Cook as someone who sat there like with a guitar. We always, in our mind's eye, we can pull up like Bob Dylan or whoever like that. But there's Cook. He's strumming along. He's playing this guitar. And it's quite bluesy. I mean, when I say bluesy, like Bobby Blue Bland type of bluesy like he's really going for in like this almost muddy waters type of way but with that cookie and voice and so you have this notion too of the journey like you send me two of the pronouns working in the title there and it's just such an interesting catchy phrase like you send me not i'm going but i'm sent there's like a call to action to duty to a higher purpose, and I don't necessarily mean God, but a kind of artistic purpose, which to me would be like a stand-in for a God, the way like nature was a stand-in for God, for Thoreau. Hmm. Interesting. And you also write that the birth of A Change Is Gonna Come is helped along by what transpired on that Miami stage. Yes, because the true artist and the true writer, and Cook was more than a singer. He was a writer who sung and a singer who wrote while singing. It's not just sitting there and thinking, okay, these are going to be the chords. Again, it's that idea of a journey, of a progression, of working things out, a scrap here, a scrap there at some other gig, something left over from a previous discarded riff that we see start taking shape where he's using, I talk about, for instance, the way he uses the A sound, like that sort of like internal vowel combination between certain words that he's going to stretch. They're going to become these melismas that he uses. And he opens up his voice as this kind of trumpet. We hear that starting to happen really on that stage in Miami. We see elements of it before, but it's becoming larger. It's becoming more overt, more pronounced. The timing is what the timing is. You get to a change is going to come, and he's less a vocalist and more of this Gabriel-esque trumpet player who just happens to be singing rather than playing a brass instrument. Well, as I mentioned, I remember buying this album when it came out in 1985, and as I mentioned also, it didn't sound like anything I had heard from Sam Cooke before, and it was recorded in 1963. Why do you think the label sat on this record and left it in the vault for over 20 years? Who knows? It could be something along the lines of a combination of things, mismanagement, incompetence. Certainly those are things that make uh, now and, and then too the world go round and also the pungency of it, the earthiness of it. It would have countervailed the notion of how people thought about Sam Cooke. And, and that's not even necessarily like a black thing. To me, it's also a kind of warts and all field recording thing. It's not like a nicety recording like we might think of something it's it's like when the the who would do like live at leeds and then they pare mm -hmm. it down to this many songs you're not getting the entire thing where keith moon knocks over like his hi-hat 
And so you have that kind of gig where this is what happened. This is what you would have heard if you were standing down in front. And I think just sometimes that we balk or management types balk from rawness. It does us a disservice because I think most people would rather listen to, say, Jimi Hendrix doing his thing than someone else doing their kind of fake thing with the click track. And this mm. is as unclick tracky as you get. So I think all of those elements probably conspired together to keep this from coming out for as long as it did. I think rawness is the absolute right term uh, for this record. And, and one thing I noticed in doing the research on this, and I sort of have a problem with it, is that they've since changed the album cover. And the new one, is it's a nice cover design and all, but it, it ain't the album I heard then and you hear now. And I think the old one much more accurately represents the music within. I wrote actually about the cover uh, extensively in the book, which is something that I don't think many people really do. But when people do tend to write about a cover, like a rock and roll, rock and soul record cover, they're usually like vintage, like Revolver, whatever, Freewheel and Bob Dylan type of thing, rather than like a release after the fact. I think for those particular releases, the cover is almost an afterthought. Because like, it, you know what I'm saying? Like it's missed its moment to be a classic cover. It's like when Great Gatsby is reissued, rarely does it use that original 1925 cover that F. Scott Fitzgerald actually wrote into the book because he had mm. the cover image before he was done with the novel. Mm. So I think it's fortuitous that they hit upon the cover that they did in 1985. And it's so striking. It's a visual. Like if you could press the visual and sound would come out, mm. it would sound like the record itself does sound and then it sort of became cleaned up and but i don't think like a lot of thought is really given to the covers of re like these archival releases when they're out of their own sort of temporal moment like if it was 1963 i think you would have had and it came out in its own time i think you would have had a different cover than sort of like the sanitized version that it's subsequently devolved into I think you nailed it. A successful record cover conveys what the music sounds like. And, you know, it's funny because the label released a live album, Sam Cooke at the Copa in 1964, which is just a year later. And that's a totally different Sam Cooke. It's a different band. It's a different show, a different record, an interesting record. And the cover on that is very highly relevant to the music. But I wonder why they would release that live record. Different audience? It's an unfairly maligned live album, too. And that's something that because I do write about this live, that other live album mm -hmm. in, in the book, because I think it's is slighted because of the more or what people assume is the more authentic experience of Harlem Square Club. And I don't know that it's necessarily more authentic. I know that it's different. And I think when I say that, I think that Sam Cooke himself would have viewed both of these sides of himself as equally valid extensions of his artistry because he does whip himself up into a lather at various points on the Copa album too. Like if I had a hammer is one of his like most hard charging numbers that he does where he gets so like overexcited that he does that thing where he starts harmonizing with himself, which like not a lot of people really do. It's kind of like a Sam Cooke thing on Harlem square club. He gets so worked up that he uses his own chest as a percussive instrument and you can hear him like beating it with his fist, which I've certainly never heard anywhere else. But you also just at the time, I'm sure like the thinking was you don't want to glut the market 
with like these live albums. I mean, it wasn't like the Grateful Dead doing their thing in, in the late 60s and early 70s when they're hardly in the studio. So it's like, have another live album, like because that was sort of their studio. That wasn't Sam, Sam Cooke's studio. I mean, think about like the Beatles. I wrote a piece the other day about their love songs compilation 1977 would have been a big year if you were into the beatles because you would have had live at the hollywood bowl so if you didn't watch them on ed sullivan and you didn't go to a show in the 60s that would have been like the first live beatles Hmm. that you might have heard so they went through their entire career and you didn't get a live album and they were like available things so we're kind of fortunate that we got the one with sam cook and don't forget live albums didn't even really sort of become a thing until like 68 is when they get big. So this is like fortuitous that we even had that. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. We're speaking with Colin Fleming. He's the author of Live at the Harlem Square Club 1963, Sam Cooke, and it's for the 33 and a third series. So let's dig deeper into this album. You clearly love and respect this band. Can you give our listeners the dime version of the band, beginning, of course, with King Curtis? If you look at the band on this, and they're just really going to play together this one time, it might be the best small combo in the history of jazz. They could go against like Miles Davis's second grade quintet or the Coltrane quartet. So Sam Cooke had a crack unit like that at this particular show, and not just the show. I mean, they were out on the road doing their thing. And then when we talk about like the Copa, that was, so he had like a road band and I would say sort of a shiny engagement supper club type of band, because those are two different, different audiences or they were in his mind. Now I think there's a lot of overlap and we don't need to parse that too much, but he had this unit where even before he steps on the stage and they're kind of vamping or even when they're tuning up, it's the only time I've ever seen in a book where an author actually writes about the sound of a group tuning up as an indication that they're just going to to raise the roof off this place. And, and that is what they do. Like you already know before he starts singing that they're just like battle of the band style going to tear your throat out. And he's going to work with them. They work with him. They draw out the best of each other. And it's just this symbiosis that is 
it's wild. It's so tight. It's feral. It's raw, like we've been talking about. But I think we have to be careful. When we talk about rawness, we don't want to suggest that something is not precise Mm. because these guys are in total control the entire time. And so is Cook. Well, it's clearly not the popular side of Sam Cooke. You mentioned the word raw, uh, fiery comes to mind. And you said this was, it's a one-off concert. No, 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 no. I wouldn't say it's a one-off concert. It's, it's his road band. So it's just what we have. Okay, okay. But if you had seen him, like, what's that? Like the gigography thing? I mean, these records weren't really kept the same way at the time. Like we can go look up, I don't know, and every single show that, the Rolling Stones are like, here they are at the Empire in 1973. Like, we can't really do that as readily with Sam Cooke. But no, these these were his guys. And someone like Clifton White was Sam Cooke's, like, right-hand man. He was on a lot of other sessions and things like that. But we don't hear these guys together, is what I'm saying, like, as a band in the studio. We hear Cooke with, like, one or two of these guys. But I think we have to say it's a precious document. We're very lucky that this exists because if people haven't heard the record and think ah rawness and fiery and it sounds like kind of intense we should be clear it's a highly melodic record it's not like if you like the sam cook of you send me and what you hear on the oldie station or whatever you wouldn't be like fi i don't like this side of sam cook because it's still drawing on all the things that you like about him best from everywhere and he's a highly melodic writer in addition to being a highly rhythmic one. So you're getting like that whole overlay. That's interesting. You know, uh, where I was going with that was that Cook was, you know, a very astute businessman and very hit conscious. I just wondered what his intentions might have been with recording this album. I think he was so intent on showing his various facets. Like he did the Billie Holiday tribute album, which is a big part of the book. And this isn't that far removed from what he was doing with the Soul Stirrers. So I trace kind of the connection between a 1955 Soul Stirrers gig, or what remains of it, and this night. And in some ways, one of the big differences is one is more theoretically sacred and one is more theoretically secular. But I mean, God is being referenced throughout this one, too, and all kinds of things of that nature. And if you listen to the Soul Stirrers, well, the females in the audience are storming the stage, and they're not thinking, like, salvation is what they're there for. They think, like, wow, this is Sam Cooke, this hot guy, this is awesome. <laughs> like, it's, it's this weird sort of, like, erotic energy, especially with the Soul Stirrers. So I think it was just, like, what he did. Like, if he hadn't died, I would have imagined him doing some like folk album that just wouldn't have been surprising to me it wouldn't have been surprising to me to see him be kind of rock and souls miles davis i think that's who sam cook was he just was a morpher the best artists are morphers there was a lot of herman melville in sam cook like you read melville and it's different from book to book but you always know it's him within the space of a sentence and we can say the same thing about sam cook within the space of six bars or whatever it is Yeah, and you compare Cook to Bob Dylan a few times in the book, and I I think that that hits that on the head in terms of the morpher that you you talked about, that there's a very good connection there. 
Yeah, I think they're very similar. And Cook covers Blown in the Wind on the Copa album. And again, songwriters, like we think of songwriters of the 1960s. I think with the 50s and rock and roll, it's kind of like Buddy Holly. We don't think of like, obviously, Elvis or Jerry Lee Lewis. It's Buddy Holly and Chuck Berry. The 60s, it's always like Dylan, Lennon, McCartney, Brian Wilson. But Sam Cooke is in that group. He should be in that group. We just sort of assume lazily that someone else wrote his stuff. But Dylan was a classic. Morpher, he's doing Nashville Skyline, and obviously Blood on the Tracks is a far afield from that. And even just his work with the band, he's a, a different guy with them in 1966. And some of the religious albums, too, you know, Slow Train Coming and, and those Sure, things. it gets to the end of the 70s and the 80s, and like, I'll do this religious stuff. And then he's later on, he's, he's sort of like Jack Frost type of figure. And he was always changing, and he went from in this... Uh, Woody Guthrie acolyte. So I think Sam Cooke is the same way. Orson Welles. These are just people who have a lot in common, in my view. Mozart, Beethoven, Sam Cooke. They can all kind of like go in there. So I admire those artists the most. Dickens, Cooke, people like that. For soul music, to me, Cooke is that guy more than any other guy by far. I'm sometimes not even comfortable. And I think I sort of chafe against it in the book being like, okay, soul guy. He's not really soul guy that minimizes him as an artist. You bring up a connection to one of my favorite songs in Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit, and you compare that a little bit to this live version of Chain Gang. Can you explain that? Well, Strange Fruit would have been um, Billie Holiday when she would subsequently perform it later. She was fond of saying that someone wrote it for her. And she didn't do that with any of the songs that she performed, like that it was going to be her thing. And then it was given to her and she fully owned it. But when that comes out in 1939, you imagine how shocking that right, was. Right. This song about, for people who don't know, the strange fruit is lynched bodies of black people swaying in the trees. So it's not just one. It's like going through like the most grisly messed up forest in like human history and she does a version a live version from 1945 that i talk about that it's like it makes the 1939 version look like kumbaya it's comparatively happy compared to it so to me that was one of the big songs one of the two biggest songs in the history of of recorded sound for this country and the other being a change is going to come with sam cook but first he's doing things like chain gang which is just shocking. It's about these guys. And I think we can safely assume just from sort of the timbre of the song, these are black guys singing in rhythm as they're like working off their sentencing. And fraught within that sort of visual is the idea that maybe like some of them or all of them shouldn't be there because that's just the way society and justice and everything was working at the time. So it's like you're driving down the road and everything and you go from like, I don't know, some like chipper kind of like I get around song to that's the sound of the men working on the chain gang. I would be like, are you kidding me? <laughs> it, it was sort of like my reaction, even as a kid. And then as an adult was, wait, are you allowed to do this? Because he was really pushing that envelope. And not only did he push the envelope, it's a form of like avant-garde art. He got a hit out of it. Right. And right. the version on Harlem Square Club like, he ups it. He he ratchets up, I would say, like, the intensity of the song there. You know, and another one is the close of having a party at the end of the set. That is simply amazing, just, you know, revelatory. Oh, the writing of having a party, too. The 
I think I compare it to to Chekhov. Like if you read a Chekhov story, and, and that's what I wanted to do because I come from a different background. I've been writing about music forever, but I write about everything for for everyone. It's just what I do. I move from like Rolling Stone to Sports Illustrated to fiction, all that stuff. So I was able to bring to bear other perspectives and if you read like a story by Chekhov the the details stack the details tell a lot of not just the plot but how we work as humans at our innermost levels and that's what Cook does and having a party just the level of observational detail and the way those details stack we get this story and you can feel the people all but like conga lining around grabbing each other by the hips and it just builds and builds and builds and my feeling every time i've ever listened to this record is that it's just never going to end that like it's somehow playing somewhere even after the music's over like on this eternal sort of fade out groove and i get that from from a number like this wow so I mentioned to you when we were talking about Nightbeat. It's probably my favorite Sam Cooke album, and it is the studio album that followed the recording, not the release of this live one. You draw a comparison or a relationship between the two albums. Can you dig into that a little bit? You have the small band. And by small band, I don't mean like cream, like power trio, but you don't have the lush orchestration that you get oftentimes with Cook. And Cook is well-served as a general rule of thumb with orchestration. We were talking about Billie Holiday, and there are just times in her career, depending on what label she's on, where she really has to battle with the strings. It's like Billie versus mm. Glissando. And Cook was never really plagued by that. But when you put her in a small group setting, you put him in a small group setting, a different kind of intimacy emerges and i don't want to say that like he feels like he's almost more comfortable in that setting but it sounds like he is like if he had his druthers that would be what sam cook would want to be he'd want to be in that small group setting so you have the idea of like a really chilled cooled out but still emotionally intense emotionally fiery for all of these blues situation happening with the night beat album it's almost just like when like you would slow down a record when you were a kid, like the vinyl and people like Black Sabbath just sounded that way normally. It's sort of like slowing down if we could take everything that happens at Harlem Square Club and just put it out at like this blue hour of the night when it's just like everything's indigo. It's just turning Harlem Square Club into indigo musical shades. And I'd like everybody to go out and buy both of these albums because they're both so great in so many ways and probably a little bit unknown. I'd like to end perhaps with my favorite piece of writing in your book and then give you the last word. And the piece is life is short. Art is long. Harlem Square Club feels endless. Yeah, I would say that's uh, so long ago. It feels like that I wrote this, but I would say, uh, yes, that is that's true. And I think that's probably the best thing we can say, or it's up there, about works of art. I think that's what you're going for as an artist. And one thing that's encoded in there is that when you return to the work of art and your life is changing and years go by and context changes, it's always ready to receive you as the person you've become in the interval and teach you something new that 
it wouldn't have had to teach you or you wouldn't have been able to be taught at a different time, a different context, in a different set of relationships, a different state of mind. It's just perpetually giving, endless. And so like when even Oasis, when they sing something like Live Forever, I always thought it's like, yeah, that's self-referential. They're talking about art and you will. And not just in the art is timeless kind of way, but in this way, so long as like humans continue to function, something like this will just have that that endless run out groove as far as I'm concerned. We've been speaking with Colin Fleming, who is the author of Sam Cooke, live at the Harlem Square Club 1963 in the 33 and a third series. So uh, what's next for you, Colin? Any new music writing or projects on the horizon? Oh, goodness. I, d- I don't even know because it's literally, <laughs> it's, liter- it's literally hundreds of things. So this book came out in September and my first film book on the 1951 movie Scrooge as a horror film, the ultimate horror film, came out in December. We're in uh, February as we, as we taped this and I had a story collection come out uh, like a week ago and there are always just so many op-eds and features and the website would be the place to uh, go because I, I don't even know. I mean, I, I quite literally do like 12 new things a week. And the name of that website is? Uh, Colin Fleming Lit, L-I-T, as in literature, not lit like you're drunk, <laughs> dot com. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Your book, Sam Cooke, Live at the Harlem Square Club, 1963, was fascinating for somebody who bought the album a long time ago, and it's made me go back and listen to it on Spotify because my turntable's not hooked up. You know, it, it was just a, a great deep dive, so thank you. Oh, no, thank you, man. If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast, and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. 
I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.